Welcome back to our big episode. It's episode 50, y'all. Woo! Today, at the end of this episode, we will be announcing the winner of our beanie giveaway. Mm-hmm. And so look out for that. And if you just want to skip to the end, I guess you could do that. But <laughs> please don't. I'll still get the download. That's true. <laughs> Go ahead, skip to the end, and then start over. That works. Okay. Okay, so today is a regular day, mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. this is our last episode of the season, mm-hmm. and my story has nothing at all to do with the new year, and I wish I had thought of that, but I didn't. Oh, that's a good point, because I was trying so hard to find something themed for a 50 episode, but I went almost a little bit too creative with it. <laughs> so I didn't have anything to do with 50 or the new year, and it's not even a survivor story. Well... I'm breaking all the rules today. I'm bad at this. It's okay. Because I came through and I found us a good 50th episode. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Give it to me! Yo! The reason this (laughs) is 50 themed was that it happened in 1972. So it's exactly 50 years ago. Oh, okay. And just this year they solved it after 50 years. Awesome. Thinking that... They would never find an answer. Okay, good job on finding that. Tell me about it. All right. Nancy Elaine Anderson was born November 10th, 1952 in Bay City, Michigan. She had nine siblings, and that's kind of the whole backstory I could find about her. I can understand why she wanted to get out of the area and, like, kind of be her own person after that. Have you ever heard of the Bay City Rollers? Mm-hmm. They were Is named that where they're after from? no, they're from Scotland, but they were named after Bay City, Michigan. They they randomly stuck a pin in a map of America, and that was what they were going to name themselves. So they named themselves. They started as the Bay City Rockers, and they changed it to the Bay City Rollers. I was such a fan. I was in love with Derek. I have no idea who that. Is. I didn't even know they were Scottish. So, <laughs> but I do recognize the name. I just didn't know that was a correlation at all. That's my little blast from the past. Well. Nancy was from Bay City, Michigan. <laughs> yes, back to Nancy, please. <laughs> Shortly after graduating high school, Nancy decided that she wanted to experience adulthood and freedom like she'd never had as a kid, obviously. Like I said, she grew up with nine other siblings and not a whole lot of alone time. So she took a big risk and at the end of 1971, at the age of 19, she flew out from Michigan all the way out to Hawaii to start her adult life. Okay, that's kind of a bold move. And and that's the thing. The more you hear about her from coworkers, friends, everybody that knew her, they were like, oh my gosh, Nancy was a trip. She was so out there and funny and just talkative. Gutsy. Mm-hmm. It seemed like she didn't really have a plan when she got to Hawaii, but she immediately found work at a McDonald's. And then she really quickly after that met a woman named Jody Spooner who was around her age and had an apartment with an extra room. And okay. so Nancy said, well, if you're willing to rent it out to me, I'll move into your apartment and we can split the bills. And that's what they decided to do. That sounds like a good time. Mm-hmm. But remember back in the early 70s, everybody was just flying by the sea of their pants. I was they just were... thinking that when I was researching this too. It was just because now if you move to a new city and you need a roommate, You go on Craigslist. I'm like, I don't even know how they did that back then. You just happened to pawn somebody who has a spare room. They used to have bulletin boards at the laundromat Mm -hmm. and things like that. And you would go and you would find those ones with the little tear-off strips at the bottom with the phone number. And so if you were interested in what they said on the little paper. They just give them a call and leave a message. You give them a call and say, hey, I'm interested in a room. Well, so that worked out. 
And how fun is this? The address the two girls lived at together was 2222 Aloha Drive in Waikiki. Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. It's a cute name, right? It sounds like a TV show. It does. It sounds like 90210, but Hawaii edition. (laughs) (laughs) They moved in. They were getting along. Everything was great. They also lived really close to the campus of the University of Hawaii, just in case. She didn't decide yet if she wanted to pursue that option, but just in case she wanted to in the future, that was easily within walking distance for her. And I'd say it was an all-around ideal situation for a young woman just trying to start her life new. Not a young cat trying to start her life new. Not a young cat. So that was at the end of 1971. On January 7th, 1972, two months after moving in, Jody, Nancy's roommate, got back to their apartment about 2.30 in the afternoon. She found Nancy in the living room talking to two, it depends on which article, but they said either silverware salesman or knife salesman. Oh boy. So some kind of like cutlery they were trying to sell to her. Okay. Jody walks in and Nancy's sitting on the couch in the living room talking to these two gentlemen trying to sell her whatever they are selling. And the four continue to talk. They kind of like went over their spiel again so that Jody could hear it. And then once they were all done, the men left, the girls locked the door. And then Jody said, okay, well now that those random men are gone, I'm going to go ahead and take a nap. And so she goes into her room sometime after 2.30 and doesn't wake up again until about 5.15 in that afternoon. Now, I'm going to try to explain the apartment layout because I found it on Zillow just to understand how she maybe didn't hear anything happening during this time. Okay. So it's a general apartment. So you walk in, it's a long Mm. rectangular living room and kitchen. And then on either side, there is a bedroom and a bathroom and a bedroom and a bathroom. Okay. So it's one of those splits. So it's kind of like two suites with the living area in the middle. Right. And then towards the back, the opposite side of the front door is the sliding glass door out to a balcony. Now that is the only exit to the balcony. However, the balcony is really long and stretches underneath the windows of both of the girls. Okay. So you can technically get to the balcony from if you just open the window and crawl out, but there's no actual door from the rooms. Okay. That's a good description. I understood exactly. All right. Just wanted to get that out there because otherwise a lot of this doesn't make sense. 5.15 p.m. Jody woke up from her nap and went out into the main living area to make herself some dinner. As she starts cooking, she realized she could hear what sounded like water running coming from Nancy's bedroom. And this normally wouldn't be strange, maybe she's just taking a shower or something, except for the fact that she knew Nancy had a shift like an evening shift at McDonald's that night and she should have left over an hour ago and now she's confused why she's still home. And so she just goes over, knocks on the door and when she doesn't answer, she cracks open the bedroom door and saw 19-year-old Nancy covered in blood on the floor. Oh, jeez. And where Nancy was, again, varies from article to article. They said either she was on the bathroom floor or on the bedroom floor. It's also possible she was half in, half out, and that's why there's a discrepancy there. But immediately, Jody ran out of the unit and went to the neighbors and called 911, and the police got there about 5.29 p.m. that evening. Well, I'm sure they didn't have 911 in 1972, so she probably just called the police. But anyway. Right. And I wanted to mention in this story, a lot of the articles did state that the police originally ruled it as a suicide. But I think the confusion comes from Jody when she first saw Nancy, just the quick glance of her covered in blood. She assumed it was a suicide and that's what she told the neighbors. Like, oh, I think she slit her wrist. Oh, I think she's shot her. She didn't really know. Yeah, because she hadn't heard anything. So why would she think that someone had attacked her? And you would almost rather think, oh, they did this to themselves than somebody was in here and did this. And 
I was here at the time. Yeah. I feel it. No, I get it. Yeah, so a lot of them said that it was a suicide, but once I tell you the list of injuries, I think it's pretty obvious once the police got there, they realized it was not a suicide. Okay. Nancy had been stabbed a total of 63 times. Jesus. Three of which were full in and out the back of her wounds. Oh my god. Something like a cutlery salesman might be able to use his knife Yes, isn't that fucking weird? Yeah. That is really weird. It was a long ass knife too, to be able to go all the way through the torso of a woman. There was that. She also had wounds to her neck, chest, stomach, back, sides, and arms. Jody couldn't see any of those other wounds. I think she literally peeked in the room. Saw blood. Saw blood and just went, oh, nope, and ran away. I mean, there must have been such a huge amount of blood that she thought there's no way she's alive. Because otherwise, why would you not go over and see if your roommate's still alive and you can help in any way? Yeah, well... We'll talk about what they found there, too. But there was, like, some cleaning happening, too. So I don't know if it wasn't as bad as it... She had been there for maybe a couple hours, and they cleaned, and then... Okay. Didn't seem... I don't know. So on top of those places I just listed, she also had defensive wounds on her legs, arms, and on her thumbs. So that immediately ruled out suicide. If you're doing... Like, if the other 63 wounds didn't already rule that out, you know? Yeah. I mean, how how do you stab yourself 63 times? Yeah. In and out. She also had no signs of sexual assault, and her fatal wound was proven to be one just that was directly to her heart, and she hemorrhaged. Investigators found two towels saturated in blood. One was just inside the door to her bedroom. Sounds like they were pushing it up against to maybe muffle the sound or stop blood from going out into the living area. There was that much blood that it was going to run out under the door? Yes. Jesus. And then they also found a second saturated towel on the fire escape from the balcony. Like, on the stairs down. Okay. They went all the way out of the back of the apartment to get to the balcony and then dropped a bloody towel on the steps? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if they were panicked and dropped it and... I don't know. Or maybe they threw it over the balcony and it landed there. Any idea from when you looked at Zillow if there are other apartments behind this? Or was there like a woods behind it? No, it's literally like on the beach. Okay. If that makes sense. It's a very public place. I can't imagine somebody covered in blood just running down the street here. I'm just thinking of them leaving the balcony and dropping a towel that's just covered and soaked in blood. Yeah. And if anybody would have been around that might have seen that happen. Well, unfortunately, nobody did. Okay. I don't really know what they were thinking. So on top of the two towels, the investigators also were able to lift fingerprints that were found from the suspect. They knew that that's who had done it because it was in the blood. Okay. So somebody that was not her had their fingerprint in her blood stain. So the list of people with possible motives was both short and long in different ways. Because on one hand, she's only been there two months. How many people would want her dead this aggressively, you know? But at the same time, anybody that would do this, you would think it'd be because she met a guy or a guy saw her and wanted to follow her back here or something like that. But there was also no sexual assault. So they couldn't figure out, even if it was a random person, why would they do this? Just because... Yeah, you would think it would be either anger or just random. Yeah, either they know her personally or they wanted something from her or and nothing was adding up here. Or, Or it was just someone who just stepped in off the street. However, Nancy was known by everyone to be overly friendly. Her roommate, and I read the court reports and all the interviews with these people, her roommate, her coworkers, her neighbors, 
all of the guys she'd had gone on dates with recently, which were, there were quite a few, because good for her, <laughs> but there were quite a few of them, and every single person said some form of, she's so outgoing, she's so friendly, she talks to every person she meets, she'll strike up a 30-minute conversation out on the beach with somebody she's never met before, and it's nothing to her. So she's almost too friendly for her own good, I think. Yeah. Is what a lot of people were saying. But that's the kind of person who gets up and moves from Bay City, Michigan to mm-hmm. Waikiki. And it's also that Midwesterner in her, you know? Where if you move to the Northeast, New England or something, a lot of people are kind of like, mind your business, leave me alone. But in the Midwest, you do get strike up conversations in the produce aisle. <laughs> like, that's just what we do. So I think a lot of people, it kind of rubbed them wrong that she was always talking to other people. But they just sounded kind of bitter during the interviews. I mean, I think that if you don't like the fact that somebody is friendly to everyone, Mm -hmm. then just avoid that person. And another thing that I think of is that in the early 70s, as opposed to now, I think there was less taboo against victim blaming. And people probably back then would have been more quick to look at her and say, oh, this is how you brought that on yourself. Yeah. One of her co-workers in her statement said, she sure was friendly with a lot of men. And I'm like, so she had friends? What the fuck does that mean then? Well, it was 1972 and there was still a lot of very distinct gender roles that a lot of people expected you to stay in. And if Mm -hmm. she was being friendly with a lot of different men, a lot of people would turn up their nose at that. They wouldn't as much today Mm -hmm. because it's normal to have male friends but back in those days you were supposed to have your girlfriends and you were supposed to date one guy i guess i see yeah where you don't want to date them all why are you hanging out with them then yeah what else could you want from them exactly so yeah i guess it could be a large majority of what it was but anyways i think she really was just friendly and just liked everybody (laughs) to be honest yeah and didn't see any limits on why she couldn't be friends with these people especially she's new to town she wants as many people on her side she can get you know? Apparently so. that did not work out in her favor, though. Well, kind of. Once you see who it is, it really had nothing to do with it. Okay. So. so they continued to speak to everybody they could think of. They found a couple people, including ex-boyfriends from high school who had gone all over the United States as well, and tracked everyone down, took their fingerprints. Everybody was very willing to give them whatever they wanted, and nothing ever came back as a match. So they literally just fizzled out after 50 years. It just went cold. Oh, that's too bad. So that's where they had to leave off. So it was cold for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Her poor I mean, family. They tried everything. Like I said, they had the towel and they actually found in the mid-2000s area when DNA started becoming, oh, well, let's backdate everything that we haven't mm-hmm. tested. So those towels that they found, they did find male DNA on it, but it was not anybody in CODIS. It was not affiliated with anybody or relatives, so they couldn't do anything with it. It was just... Yeah. So for nearly 50 years, the investigation eventually dwindled out, growing colder, and her family feared that they would never find the answers. However, and I'm not going to cry because I'm just so happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's usually when I cry too, is the happy cries. Mm Mm-hmm. In December of 2021, an anonymous tip came in that they believed a man named Tudor Chirilla is the man that they should hone in on. Tudor, now 77 years old, but still alive, so mm-hmm. good okay. news, was an attorney working out of Reno, Nevada. In the late 70s, he found himself serving as Chief Deputy Attorney General of Nevada and then eventually ran for the Nevada Supreme Court in 1994. However, he lost that. 
They soon found out that while Tudor had graduated law school in Sacramento, California, and he claimed when they went to question him about this, he said, I was never in Hawaii. I have no idea what you're talking about. I've graduated college in California and I've been living in Nevada ever since being an attorney. Then they kind of looked into him a little bit further and found that in March of 1971, he was in Honolulu at the campus of the University of Hawaii, which I mentioned is right there next to where Nancy lived. Right. He was actually just a graduate assistant there, so they didn't have any record of him actually living in that area. However, he had had his car broken into in March of 1971 before he ever killed her and reported that to the Honolulu police, and that's the reason they can tie him to being in this area at that time. Wow. Yes. Yeah, the records available from 1971 are pretty scarce. Mm-hmm. People just didn't have any way to keep stuff forever. Mm-hmm. The fact that he had that police report on his car break in, that's amazing. And dumb on his part, thinking that's never going to come up. Like, oh, I was never in Hawaii. You can't prove that. Mm-hmm. Actually, we can because you called the police in Hawaii, dude. So at that point, he was 26 years old, and that was right before he graduated and became a lawyer. So they questioned him, they asked him to provide some DNA, but once again, he's an attorney, so he decided, no, you can't make me, and refused. So April 2022, they contacted his son, who was out living in California, and asked him for a sample. And his son said, fuck yeah, you can have it. And then he just handed it right over. Were they estranged? I don't think so, but it didn't really say in any of the articles. It sounds like they weren't on good terms, but it not necessarily He's strange. like, my dad's a douche. I'm going to give you my DNA. He's like, you know, I could see it. <laughs> I could see it. So Wow. But yeah, the son gave them what they wanted, and so they sent that in to Parabon Nanolabs, who, again, had captured the DNA of the killer from 1972, and compared it to the son's, and it came back that he was a biological match to the son of whoever had done this. Wow. So the police were now able to get a warrant and force Tudor to give up a sample, and after begrudgingly giving up that DNA... He attempted suicide two days later before the results could come back, but again, was unsuccessful. How did his name ever come up in the first place? An anonymous tip. Oh, I missed that So maybe like a drinking buddy, he mentioned it to or something like that? Maybe somebody he knew from Honolulu? We don't know. Because normally they go through the whole familial DNA before they find out who it was. Yeah, but he only had the one And he came in through the back door that way, and I'm like... Wait a minute, how'd they even find him in the first place? Yep. Okay, now so it was I just understand. an anonymous tip, so they started looking into it, and they realized they didn't have his DNA on file, so they had to try to trick him into it, and they ended up getting his son on board. So. Okay. After he attempted suicide, it actually kind of worked out in the law enforcement's favor because he was in the hospital, and then the results came back that he was a match, and so then they just arrested him from the hospital. Finally, on September 14th, at the age of 77 years old, he was officially in custody. Wow. And that was just this year. 50 um, years of getting away with it. You know, at this point, he's like, there's no way they're ever going to catch me on that. Like, I got away with it. Yeah. Mm. But as a lawyer, he had to know that there was a chance that they would eventually come back and find him. Well, he had because to have been of all sweating the... with all the new technology yeah. the last 20 years. Because of all the ones. I mean, in the last year, mm-hmm. five or six really high-profile cases have been solved with and they're the DNA. really old ones, too. Yeah. It's not like, oh, this was from 1995. Like, you know, it's... So I hope he was pooping his pants mm-hmm. every day for five years. And still is. <laughs> yeah. 
So finally, on December 1st of this year, Tudor was extradited to Hawaii, and he is pleading not guilty. He hasn't had his full trial yet. He tried desperately to fight the extradition, saying that his constitutional rights had been taken when police forced him to give a saliva sample, but lost that battle. I'm finding it hard to feel bad for him. (laughs) Well, if the DNA came back and said that his son was the son of the killer, I Mm -hmm. think that it's probable cause to say, you better give us some DNA. Well, and that's, they literally had a warrant. Sorry. Yeah. Take it up with the judge, but they had the right to take that from you, dude. That's right. But as of now, his trial has been scheduled for February of 2023, and 51 years later, Nancy has justice. Yeah, but I just want to know how it Uh, happened. I know. Why? Why did he come in there and kill her? How did that happen? We don't know. Keep in mind, there were a couple articles I didn't really want to bring up too much into it because I think it's going to become bigger than it is about how now that they have his DNA they're running it through a couple other places he lived throughout his life including like Newport Beach in California mm-hmm. where a woman was found deceased the same similar fashion okay. and so I think they're kind of taking his DNA and now uploading it into CODIS yeah. and I and, just think that's and there are other murders that he looks good for if, if his DNA comes back as a match for mm-hmm. them because he was there at the time yeah wow and I just think that that's crazy. I think you've mentioned it once in one of our previous episodes where how the fuck does somebody become the, what was he, chief deputy attorney general of an entire state and not have to have your fingerprints and your DNA on file? Are you kidding? Yeah. I think I mentioned it because for my Texas license, I had to submit fingerprints Yeah. to be analyzed <laughs> to make sure that I'm not some sort of a criminal. So I don't know. How do you get that high? I think if we were talking about a police officer mm-hmm. who had never had his fingerprints on file. I don't see how that's possible. Every officer working should have their fingerprints and their DNA on file. Agreed. Anybody who works in any kind of like graduate field, I feel like, especially too. I mean like doctors, nurses should. Anybody who sees people in a way where they're at a low moment, you should have to be on file because people are going to take advantage of that and... Yeah, they do. So police officers, nurses, doctors, attorneys, all these people that work with like highly skilled areas... Why are they not doing that? Imagine it could have 20 years ago that's been solved. I can't imagine the justification for taking DNA from all of those professionals, but definitely fingerprints. I guess I just figured DNA because we already have to do drug tests half the time anyway, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of the drug tests have fallen under the radar, though, because of COVID and so many people working from home now. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I mean, there is a certain level of privacy you have to give up just Mm -hmm. to go to your job. So So I could see an argument for that both ways. Well, good for Nancy. I'm happy... That that jackass was finally caught. It and makes I'm glad me his mad. own son was his undoing. Yeah, I am too. It makes me mad though, like you. Mm-hmm. That he accomplished all these things. And he could very likely be a serial killer. I mean, it looks like he's been in other places that it's possible. Yeah, you don't jump from state to state for no reason. And then just not talk about it. Okay. Well, when <laughs> there are similar cases that happened... Mm-hmm. While you were there, the little short period of time that you happened to be there, mm-hmm. and they look just like the one that happened to Nancy. Mm-hmm. And not to say he's a serial killer, because obviously he hasn't well, even faced his that. trial yet. No, no, I'm just saying, but also sneaking up the fire escape on somebody's balcony, breaking in through their bedroom window, that doesn't seem like a first offense type of 
Stabbing them 63 times. Unless he came in through the sliding glass door that may not have been locked and then he just walked in. Possible too, but I don't know. I mean, it's awful. It's an awful story. And she had a family of 11 back in Michigan who Mm -hmm. were just devastated and waited 50 years to get any kind of resolution. Well, her mom and dad, I know her dad died before she did, so at least he didn't have to face that. But I mean, her mom died in 2001 or something like that. And so that 30 years is still a long time to wait to find out what happened to your kid. Okay, well, I am breaking the rules today. Okay. Like I told you, my story has nothing to do with a survivor, and it has nothing to do with the 50th episode. And (laughs) despite the fact that this comes out on December 30th, it has nothing to do with the new year. All right. It's just something I ran across that had never occurred to me before, and I thought it was interesting. Okay. I'm just going to go for it. Yeah, I'm just wondering what it does have to do with now, because one of the... (laughs) You're like, it's just not even about true crime. I just wanted to tell you a story. It is about crime. Okay. All right. That's all that matters. (laughs) A man by the name of S. Lee was an accountant living near San Francisco, California. He goes by pseudonyms in the articles that were written about him to protect his privacy because he's embarrassed and upset about what happened to him. Okay. And he also wants to dissuade the internet trolls from trying to bully him online. Mm Mm-hmm. In one article, he is identified as CY, and in another one, he's identified as UN, so I'm using UN for this story. Okay. UN was the victim of a crypto scam. One day, he received a random text message that portrayed the sender as being confused about why UN's phone number was in her contacts. It's like, hey, why are you in my contacts? I don't think I know you. And then he's like, I'm UN. How are you? And she's like, I'm Jessica. How are you? He responded that he didn't know how he might have gotten into her contacts. She started a conversation with him that continued over the next day or so. And this led to her sending him a photo of herself. Well, the photo was of an attractive young woman. And he's a middle-aged man whose father was dying from a terminal illness. So he was very stressed out in his life. And he was enjoying the distraction of this conversation Mm -hmm. with this attractive woman who just happened to find him on his phone. Soon, he was hearing from Jessica every day. She was flirty with him. She sent photos that made it appear that she lived in the New York area with her family, who had all supposedly immigrated from China. Well, Yuan was also a Chinese immigrant, and he was the executor for his father's estate, and he wanted to set up the family's finances so that his four older siblings would be taken care of in their retirement years. This all came up just during conversations that Yuan was having with Jessica. That's a pretty deep conversation for a random wrong number. Well, I think it happened over a period of weeks. Oh, okay. I thought it was like... Not all the same I know we just met 24 hours ago, but I want... (laughs) That makes more sense. Okay. So when Jessica one day mentioned that she had made a killer windfall profit off of insider information that she got from her uncle, she explained to Yuan that she could get in trouble for being involved in this gold trading because her uncle was deep in the Hong Kong world of commodities trading. Hmm. She said he had a team of analysts that gave him inside information about when it was time to buy or sell. Jessica said she had made loads of money off these insider trades and implied to Yuan that since he was in the midst of securing his family's future finances, he could set up an account with a brokerage firm that she sometimes used and start making the same kind of money too. Mm-hmm. This would be the perfect way to secure his family's future. At first, Yuan was nervous and didn't think he should do it. He said he was always very cautious and conservative with his finances. He told Jessica he could not afford to lose any of the family's money. And if something went wrong and the investment failed, he would have such shame that he would kill himself. Mm. But as Jessica's scam got deeper and deeper, and Yuan truly believed that Jessica was his friend and cared about him, Yuan was seduced into it and started to add money into the brokerage account that Jessica had convinced him to set up. 
She reminded him that increasing the family's wealth was the best way to care for his dying father. Every time Yuen's father would take a turn for the worse, Jessica used Yuen's emotional vulnerability to get him to deposit more and more money into the account. She told him that because the profit margin was so high on these trades that he should put as much money as he could possibly come up with into the account before he actually bought into the whole gold scheme. Then he could take his profits and get out, leaving his family financially secure for the rest of their lives. Hmm. On his way to his father's bedside, Yuan made a large transaction. When Yuan's father died in hospice that day, he was by his side. He later wrote on Facebook, I was on my way to spend my very last evening with my father. He was on a loud ventilator, breathing really hard. Right before I went into his room, I made a financial transaction that forever ruined my family's and my life. While I was in his room, I spoke to him. We listened to old Cantonese songs, and I told him it's okay to move on if you're suffering. At 1.30 a.m., I dozed off and woke up at 1.45 a.m. The entire room was silent. My Bluetooth speaker stopped playing, and my father was at peace. This was the beginning of my nightmare. Yuen was distracted. His father had just died. He stopped depositing money into the account. Jessica didn't seem very concerned for Yuen's father's death. Now she's telling him that he needs to get the account higher so that he can buy a house in New York so they could visit one another. So now she's implying that she wants to have some relationship with him. So I guess I'm just confused. Where is he putting the money? There's an app. He's purchasing a cryptocurrency called Ethereum. Okay. And then the Ethereum is going to then be traded for gold futures or something. Okay. And that's what Jessica tells him that she's been doing and making just hand over fist money. Okay, so he's not necessarily forwarding it to her. He's just uploading it and... Into a brokerage account. I gotcha. Okay, But in the end, it turns out the brokerage is a scam. Mm -hmm. But they're letting the money sit in his account so that he sees it still sitting there. And then they're showing these little profits being added day by day. So he thinks that if he just keeps adding more money, pretty soon he's going to be able to cash it all out and have boatloads of profit. False sense of security by changing the numbers a little bit and then... Yeah, because they were never going to give him the money back. Mm -hmm. But he thought if he just kept putting more in, then ultimately he would have so much in there that he could just take it all out and he'd be financially set forever. I gotcha. But he was overwhelmed at work. He was planning his father's funeral and he didn't want to put any more money into the account. She told him, Jessica told him, that adding money into the account was like, quote, buying a chicken to lay eggs. But he said no. His account was over $500,000 by now. And he didn't feel like adding any more into it. After six days of not adding money into the account, he opened his MetaTrader app, which is the app he used to to open that account. And the MetaTrader app had closed him out of his investments. His account balance was now not $500,000. It was minus $480,000. Holy shit. Yuen went into a panic. He didn't want to tell anyone what had happened. He was embarrassed. He had just lost his father. His family was counting on him to handle all the accounts and distribute his father's money properly. Mm-hmm. But it was all gone. Jessica told him that he must have exited the MetaTrader app prematurely and caused an error to happen for his money to be lost. She told him that his only option to get the money back was to put more money in and take advantage of the next big trading opportunity and make all the money come back just a little bit at a time. So she's basically like, oh, well, don't worry about it. Just start over and you'll be back there in no time. Yeah. Basically, she's like, keep putting money in and you'll get more profit back, so you'll be fine. But he didn't know where to get money to add into the account to earn back his losses. Of course. In his grief and his panic, he realized he could sell off the family's mutual fund shares, but he kept silent to his family about it. 
Jessica told him if he could just wait a few more days that the loss would be reversed and he would not only have back what he had lost, that he would have a windfall profit on top of that too. Mm -hmm. And since he was certain that Jessica was right, he was blaming himself for some error that he made that caused the disappearance of his funds. Mm -hmm. He was certain she was right and so he also borrowed $100,000 from his brother-in-law, transferred it to the account, and made the final plans for his father's funeral. So all this is happening when he is in deep grief. He's making these decisions, and he's not emotionally in a place where he should be making big decisions like this. Well, did his brother-in-law know what he was... Did he think it was going towards he the funeral? He did not tell his brother-in-law what the money was for. I was just wondering, like... I mean, good for him for being a good brother-in-law. But at the same time, I don't... If you came to me and said, Bea, I need to borrow $100,000, I'd be like... If you need it and I have it, I'll give it to you. But please explain to me why you need $100,000. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that that's fair. Huh, okay. Yeah. Yuen told Jessica he wasn't sure if he was crying over his father or the loss of all this money. But she kept after him to put more money into the account. Finally, Yuen had reached his limit and he could not come up with any more funds to put in. Shortly afterward, Jessica messaged him that it was time to do another big trade. So the first big trade was the day his father died. Mm -hmm. And so now she's saying it's time to do another one if you want to make this money back. Three minutes after he made the big trade, his account and entire portfolio emptied. He watched his balance go down to zero again. Yuan started to panic. He begged Jessica to help him get this money back. She told him the only way to build up the account so he could regain his losses was to add more money again. Yuan said he had $105 left to his name. Jesus. Jessica said he had to start somewhere. She said to him, with $105, start from scratch. I believe in you. You can do it. So she wants him to put his last penny out there after he's already lost about a million dollars to her. The same day, Yuen finally knew he had to tell his family what had been going on. He had lost over a million dollars of his family's money, including all 30 years that he and his wife had been putting away savings. It was all gone. Yuan thought he might harm himself, and so his brother called an ambulance to take him to a psych ward where he was placed on suicide watch. He spent two days there, and for the rest of December, he was just still in disbelief that the million dollars was actually gone. Mm -hmm. He tried texting Jessica a few more times, but she had stopped responding. After the new year, he finally realized that he had been scammed. In the end, Yuan acknowledged that he had been lied to and cheated out of his life savings and his family's savings. Mm -hmm. He went to a support group, the Global Anti-Scam Organization. He posted warnings on Reddit, telling readers that S&J Future Limited was a sham brokerage firm and not to invest any of their money with him. Mm -hmm. A friend started to go fund me in an attempt to help him regain some of the money he lost. So far, he's received less than $3,000. People aren't very sympathetic to scam victims. People never believe it could happen to them. But... Yuan is not a dumb guy. He was in a vulnerable position, and that's what they play on. They find people who are making decisions when their emotions are somewhere else. But if it never happens to any of these people that say it could never happen to them, then why is it such a prevalent thing? Because they're creative. They find new ways. Every single time somebody comes out and says, don't do this, it's a scam, it's like, oh, there's another one around the corner that nobody knows about yet. Like, Well, and there are so many of them. Yeah, it's like, oh... Pretty soon you'll be walking down the street and say hi to a stranger, and now it's like now they have your bank account. <laughs> like how the fuck? Well, they can do that. I they know with the little scan scanners it. through your 
pocket. Yeah, you're supposed to have a little pouch to put all of your bank oh, cards nothing's in. Nothing's safe anymore. <laughs> nothing is. The perpetrators of these kinds of scams call it pig butchering. Pig butchering scams. Fattening up the pig as much as possible before killing it. Mm-hmm. So it's you putting as much money in there as they can get you to put into that account before they steal that account. They steal it, cut ties, Exactly. Gone. Exactly. In other words, they use these really psychologically sophisticated techniques of sucking people into the scam. They befriend them. They tell supposed secrets and ask the victim to keep their secret, not to rat them out. Then, as the victim feels that the scammer has trusted them with this important information, they eventually start returning the favor and start trusting the scammer. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I've got something on you so I can trust you now. The more they trust the scammer, the more vulnerable they become to the suggestions and the requests that the scammers are feeding to them. Mm -hmm. The scammer also gets the victim to tell them about the things that are stressing them out. Oh, you seem upset. What's on your mind today? The things that put them into vulnerable positions. And then the scammer uses those vulnerabilities against them. But have you ever wondered how it's possible that so many people are involved in these scams? Mm. I mean, how is it possible that it seems half of the world is trying to run a scam on the other half of the world? Yeah. Well, it's not always individuals. There are some individuals that are running scams, but many of them are organized crime. And it's very often that the people first contacting potential victims do not want to be doing this. A huge number of the people who initiate those wrong number scams Mm -hmm. or the scams on Tinder or the scams on Facebook, a lot of those people were tricked into meeting with traffickers, generally with the promise of a well-paying job. The traffickers kidnap them, purchase them, sell them like their property, and will not let them go. So a lot of these scammers are trafficking victims Mm -hmm. who are doing this because they can't be let out. It's the same scheme that traffickers use to traffic people to force them into sex work Mm -hmm. or crime gangs or any other number of nefarious forced activities. Well, I'm just like, because I've gotten these texts before, personally, where it's like, hey, who's this? And I'm like, who are you? And then they're just like, here's a picture of me. And one time I got a picture and it was this like busty chick. And I was like, cool, I don't think I'm the one you want to talk to. But I'm like, why are they kidnapping people to do this when it seems like they just have a script? It's not a script. Let me get further into it and you'll you'll understand more about what it is they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. There are actual literal ads on Telegram that offer to sell people who have been kidnapped. Here are some of these. There's three ads that I found. One, Cambodia, Sahanakville, six Bangladeshis can type and speak English. For companies, Sahanakville, targeting foreigners, people who can make decisions, come chat, can deliver. So they're offering to sell you six Bangladeshis who speak English and can type and work on the computer, and they will sell you these people who will target foreigners. Sahanakville, a few Chinese born in the 90s, cannot share pictures, no passports, have ID cards, can interview directly. Price relatively high. Selling a Chinese man in Sahanakville, just smuggled from China, 22 years old with ID card, Typing very slow. Only third day here. Companies who can accept slow typers come chat. 10,000 US dollars. So they're Mm. selling people. It's not even that they're kidnapping them and forcing them to work. They're selling to each other. When this guy doesn't perform to your expectations, you just sell him to another trafficker. So this is the story of Fan. Fan is not his real name. That's a pseudonym that he wants to use. He was 22 years old. He was working as a prep cook at his sister's restaurant in China's Fujian province until 2021. The restaurant closed and he started working at an app-based meal delivery service, kind of like DoorDash 
in China. Okay. He might have expected to make somewhere in the vicinity of $1,600 a year doing this job. Wages there are far lower than they right. are here. But in March of 2021, Fan was contacted and offered a marketing job if he would move to Cambodia, and the pay was going to be $1,000 a month, which would be a huge opportunity for him. When he told his brother about this offer, his brother quit the job he had to go join this company along with Fan. Fan and his brother went to Phnom Penh, very excited, as this was his first time leaving China. They had to wait through two weeks of COVID-19 quarantine at a hotel, and then they were picked up and driven to a secure compound for training. But they weren't receiving the training that they thought they were going to be getting, mm -hmm. training that would apply to food delivery or kitchen work or even food standards. They were being prepped to understand how to run fraud operations on individuals. They didn't want any part of scam operations, but they quickly realized they were not employees, they were captives. They could not leave the secure compound. There were guards, there were walls, there were barbed wire fences, and there were also multiple levels of bosses, and if any of them got angry with you for not doing what they wanted, you were going to be in a world of hurt. Fawn saw terrible things happen to people who did not perform well or who exhibited any kind of rebellion. They were each given 10 cell phones to use to initiate these wrong number texts. So they had a stack of 10 phones in front of them, and they would stay busy all day, all day, all day, texting this person, texting that person, sending out texts to five different people on each phone or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they would just continue those conversations over time. They worked 12 hours every day, never leaving the compound. They were provided with photo packs to use so that if you were pretending to be a woman on this text conversation and they said, well, let me see your picture, they would have a picture to send. Okay. Sometimes they acted as men. Sometimes they acted as women. They would use the photo packs as the friendships developed between their alias and the potential victims. The photos had been stolen from online accounts from Facebook or Instagram or Tinder or whatever. After Fawn and his brother had been forced to continue the pig butchering scams for six months, their captors decided to move their operation from Phnom Penh to Sahanakville, which is on the coast of Cambodia. The bosses told them either they had to move along with the scam operation to Sahanakville, or Fawn and his brother would have to buy their freedom for $7,000 each. Since neither of them were making any income from these activities that they were doing, there was no way that they could purchase their freedom, so off they went to Sahanakville. So it's not really an option at all. If you're not paying them, where the fuck are they supposed to get the money? Yeah, I mean, the only thing would be if they had family that could pay this ransom basically it's a ransom well would they contact them for them or like how are they going to contact their family to pay it i don't know that because it seems like if they have 10 phones and access to online facebook and mm. i don't know but i think there was just so much monitoring going on with the, what they were doing on the phones and online well, like you said they saw a lot of people getting harshly punished you probably don't want to oh text for help and then now they found out and what they're they gonna do to me now like <laughs> exactly yeah oh, oh, okay. so they had to go along with the scam operation to Sahanakville. in the new location the scam operation filled up the upper floors of a hotel and casino called the white sand palace which was located in the center of the city a little over a block from the Prime Minister's summer residence. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge part of what's going on in the city because they're taking up some of the prime real estate in the city. So it seems like it's probably known. I think it's, it's becoming... It's not a huge secret. It's just like maybe the higher-ups know, but maybe not everybody knows. I think that maybe that's true. Fawn saw trafficked workers beaten half to death by guards, 
No one stepped forward to help them because they wouldn't be missed if the guards decided to beat them to death as well. Mm -hmm. Fawn and his brother were at the White Sand Palace for just over a week when someone actually came in and offered to help them escape. But once they got out of there, they realized they had been sold to another trafficking cyber scam operation. So this person came in, helped them escape, and then that person made money and sold them to another operation. And the location of this one, they called themselves the Arc de Triomphe, which is a little magnanimous for what they're actually doing, Mm -hmm. was even more prison-like than where they had just come from. Oh, great. Yeah. This one was a whole complex of apartment buildings, and I saw a photo of it. It's just these huge square beige buildings that are surrounded by, looks like prison fencing. It's that prison Mm -hmm. fencing I used to replace, and there's no way you're getting out of there because it's guarded. There's probably security cameras. There are people that were going to kill you if you tried to get out of here. Mm -hmm. Once they had been brought to the Arc de Triomphe, their price for their freedom had gone from $7,000 each to now it's $11,700 each. Okay. So they're getting in deeper and deeper and deeper. Of course, they had no hope of ever being able to pay that much money and be released. Mm-hmm. In this cyber scam operation, Fawn created attractive online profiles that would be believable. So now he's not only working on phones, now he's also setting up Facebook profiles, Tinder profiles, LinkedIn profiles. So that's probably why they have a higher freedom. Probably thing so. Now, because now they're getting better at it. Now they're creating more convincing things than just... Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Horrible. They would use packages of photos similar to the ones that they were used in the text scam, but you need a lot more of them now. So they're going to these profiles that have lots and lots of photos, and they're stealing all these photos from these unsuspecting people who are now the face of a scam. Yeah. But they would add additional photos that made them appear to be beautiful and rich and have lots of interesting hobbies. Always, they were told to talk about how important the family is to them as the fake persona because that sucks people in. Mm -hmm. These profiles are on Facebook, OkCupid, LinkedIn, Tinder, Instagram, WhatsApp. Especially women. I know that on Facebook and Instagram, I am constantly getting either friend requests, I'm private on Instagram so you can't look at my profile Mm -hmm. but I'm constantly getting follow requests from quote handsome widowers who are military veterans and whose interests are things like dogs and God and family and Mm -hmm. I delete them I'm not interested in those because I know those people aren't real. It's the same guy with a different picture. A hundred of them. A hundred in a year I've probably had. And you get those same ones on Facebook. And they just added all their photos today. They got 15 photos, but it's like a rose and oh, a, yeah, that a sunset. And <clears throat> so you or can... the bloody knife like that one guy. Oh, that was hilarious. <laughs> if you get those, just delete those. You don't accept those friend requests and you don't let those people follow you on Instagram Mm -hmm. because they are scams they're trying to find out about you so they can find a way to weasel in Mm -hmm. these are exactly the kinds of profiles these trafficked individuals are creating for cyber scam operations Fawn and his brother went through really astute psychological training on how to speak to people how to word things to people how to find out how much money they might have or how vulnerable they might be how much stress they're in in their lives right now How likely are they to be someone who might fall for a scam like this? Sometimes they were scamming Germans, and the fact they didn't speak German was not a factor. All of these interactions were filtered through translation software. Mm. So when you get a weird text that seems like a bad translation, it probably is a bad translation. Mm -hmm. Stop contacting that person back. It is sad that some people are so lonely or so troubled in the world that they think they have to resort to accepting scam friends from Cambodia 
Claudia, who are locked in a room and not allowed to leave. If Fawn or his brother were talking to people as females, Mm -hmm. and someone said, hey, I want to talk to you on the phone in order to verify, yes, you're actually a woman. Mm -hmm. They had a woman on staff who would be fluent in whatever language they would have in the country they are trying to scam that time. Interesting. And that person would create voice recordings for them to send to the target. They might be personalized. Hey, Franz, I can't call you right now, so I'm leaving this voice message for you. Hopefully I'll hear from you later. So if it was a, they were doing a male profile? They would have a man who would be fluent in the language also. Okay. I just didn't know if they just had to try to get through it themselves if they didn't know the language? (laughs) No, whatever the... God, this whole situation is so weird. It is, and it's it's horrifying when you really think about it. Mm -hmm. When they had gotten the mark to trust them, they convinced them to buy cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ethereum which is what happened to UN, mm-hmm. and deposit them in the brokerage accounts, just like what happened to UN. Once the account started getting large enough, sometimes a higher up in the crypto scam operation would start taking over contact with the target. And some victims have later said it seemed like their friend had become a different person towards the end. Well, that's because it probably was a different person that at the sense. end. That makes sense. Okay. Fawn said he slept in a dorm room that had metal bunk beds and there were four to five other people in that room. All that he ever got to do was to eat, sleep and work Mm -hmm. and he lost track of time he was kind of dissociating he had nothing for himself he had no freedom no enjoyment no chance that he was going to get away he hated what he was doing he felt awful he knew he was hurting people by cheating them out of their savings Mm -hmm. all he had wanted to do was work in the restaurant industry and earn a living wage out of desperation fawn eventually sent a facebook message to the governor of preasahanic province and received a phone call back from the police. But his bosses discovered the call and forced Fawn and his brother to record a video confessing their crimes and saying they had received a loan from the company and that they were working there until they had paid off the loan. But no loan had ever been made. So Mm -hmm. this was so Fawn and his brother couldn't say, these people kidnapped me. Yeah. Fawn was slapped, berated, beaten, had things thrown at him. His boss screamed at him that it wouldn't matter if he died in there because at least six bodies had been discovered in the marshlands near Sahanakville's crypto scam operation centers, and many of those dead were Chinese men, just like Fawn and his brother. So the police didn't do anything after they found those bodies, or is that why you They didn't know where they were coming from. Oh. Or at least they said they didn't know where they were coming from. Who knows? They may have been on the take. Gotcha. The Arc de Triomphe operation, which is where Fawn and his brother were being held, no longer wanted to deal with a troublemaker like Fawn. So he and his brother were sold to yet a third operation, and then they were moved back to Phnom Penh. But now their price for freedom had gone up to $15,000 each to be released. So every time they get moved, their their situation becomes more and more impossible for them to see a way out of it. Mm-hmm. The new operation, however, was less strict about their security, and Fawn made up an excuse one day that he had a friend in the area and would like to go out of the compound to visit them. Strangely, he was allowed to leave, probably because the bosses didn't think he would just run and leave his brother there. That's Oof, but yeah. that is what he did. Well, Fawn left the compound and ran to the police who were able to get his brother out of the compound too. Fawn went first to a place called the Great Wall Hotel in his first few months after he was freed because it was near the airport and he was trying to raise money so that he could return to China. It was hard to get back into China because of the zero COVID policy there and because they were having so few flights in and out that the airfare had skyrocketed. Is This, this is after the pandemic too, right? It's during... 
zero. Well, like the middle, like of... the middle, middle to end. Okay, that makes sense because they were really. They strict. still have zero COVID policy in China yeah. now. So he had to go through all kinds of paperwork to try and get documentation that would allow him back into China in the in the event that he could afford to get airfare, mm-hmm. because he still didn't have his passport. One of these crypto scam operations was holding his passport. His father finally has been able to raise money for him to fly home. I don't know for sure if he's back there yet, but they said it's still a matter of a waiting game once you get the money to go. But all he wants to do, all Fawn wants to do is go back and live on the farm, the family farm. He just wants to tend the animals. I guess they have chickens and ducks, and he just wants to go and feed chickens and ducks and live with his parents where he's safe. He's terrified to try to frame work again with other people. Cambodia is a huge hotbed of trafficking now. And especially now, it didn't used to be so bad. There have been all kinds of organized crime crackdowns that have been taking place in Bangladesh in the last decade. And we talked about it a little bit in the other trafficking episode that I did. I was going to ask where that was, where the daughter and her mom... They were from Bangladesh. They were trafficked to India, and then they found their way home. That's right. Okay. The U.S. State Department places Cambodia on the bottom tier of how well countries are doing to combat human trafficking. But I think Cambodia is overwhelmed because once Bangladesh started cracking down on organized crime and trafficking, Mm -hmm. they all started moving into Cambodia. It's like the spillover now. It is. It's the spillover, and... Cambodia was not prepared Mm -hmm. for how to handle this. But in the end, the double hurt of forced trafficked individuals to victimize other people on the other side of the world is just mind-boggling to me. Mm -hmm. It never once occurred to me that that was where all these scammers were coming from. There are people who are working to improve the situation for trafficked individuals. A United Nations special report stated that workers trapped in a Cambodian scam compounds are experiencing a living hell. And that's the truth. So the scammers are hurting people, and the scammers are often victims themselves. A few days after that UN report came out, a video emerged, and it was pretty viral. It was seen around the world of 40 Vietnamese trafficked persons, both men and women, fleeing a trafficking compound that was set up in a casino, so it was a scam operation also. Mm-hmm. Jumping into the 70-foot-wide Ben D River between Cambodia and Vietnam, this daring escape had taken place after the workers had been sitting at their tasks for one hour. Strong young men took their places at the front of the group. They all got up. The men attacked the guards, created an opening, and all the women ran out to break through and escape. Okay, so it was kind of like a prison break almost. Like we're all It's of... exactly what it was. It was a prison break. okay. The overpowered guards, as well as additional guards, chased the escapees, clubbing them with batons, hitting them with sticks. One person was recaptured, but the rest escaped into the river toward their homeland. Mm. And it's, it's a dangerous river. It's 70 feet wide, and they just hopped in. Many of them didn't know how to swim, mm-hmm. but the others who could swim helped them make it across the river. They were welcomed into the Long Bend Border Guard Station uninjured and were taken to a communal building where they received care and gave statements to police. Mm-hmm. All of these people had been captured using the job scheme where they had been offered a good paying job because it's so hard to make decent money in Cambodia, in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. in India, in any of these countries. People said, I'll pay you this much to come here and type in this air-conditioned building. Mm-hmm. They're like, that sounds great. And they suck them in and then they never get to leave. They were forced to run the phone and crypto scams, just like Fawn, for 14 hours a day. If they didn't perform to the captor's liking, they were threatened to be electrocuted. In the first half of 2022, 
Vietnamese and Cambodian authorities collaborated to rescue another 250 people from crypto scam traffickers. They rescued 250 and these other 40 escaped. That's almost 300 people and that's probably a drop in the bucket. Hopefully, as more and more people hear about these kinds of stories, the way that people get sucked in, the way people get victimized, hopefully it will make it easier for people to recognize when they might be getting played. Because Mm -hmm. everyone as humans has vulnerable points and every one of us has moments when we make poor decisions. And it would just be really helpful if we could all start looking out for each other Mm -hmm. and trying to be aware of of when somebody might be lying to us. Just because you're honest doesn't mean everybody is. And in the new year, let's all try to increase our awareness that yes, this does happen to people. Yes, this happens to people who are smart. Yes, this happens to people who are vulnerable. You were telling the first story. Sorry, I just was thinking of the Tinder swindler. Like, it literally sounded like some of the scams that guy would run. Yeah. Where it's like, it yeah. happens everywhere all the time. Like It does, but the Tinder swindler wasn't being trafficked. Well, no, but he, I don't know. Sometimes just... the people who are victimizing others are victims themselves. Huh? And... If somebody tells you, I'm going to beat your head in with this pipe, or you're going to try and scam somebody out of $100,000, mm-hmm. which is the choice you're going to make? You know, nobody mm-hmm. wants to lose $100,000, but nobody wants their head beaten in with a pipe. But you also have to think not all of these scams are those two. No. I think the more detailed ones probably aren't these I don't know situations. what you mean by the more detailed ones. Like the one that happened to UN. I think that requires a level of whoever was texting him was not doing that with 50 Uh, other I think what happened to him was exactly what these guys were doing it was exactly what they described I think he was scammed by one of these it just seems like they were talking so frequently and in such depth that how the fuck would they remember what happened to him or was going on with him if they're doing this to 50 other people every day well I guess that he was reading back over them or she or he I don't know even know if it was a man I or a woman I just don't think that's realistic that sounds like somebody who's really good at it and then I don't know what the what the answer is I don't have any way to prove it to you but okay. what he described is exactly what they described Describe that these people were doing. Exactly. I just think that scam's pretty well known now, though. I think they're probably doing this in high... Not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I think they heard other people doing it, and now they're finding a way to do it cheaper, faster with like people that aren't willing... Oh, I'm not saying that it started this way. It started with people who were very... They were probably individualized and they were creative and they were doing individual scams. But, Mm -hmm. you know, when one guy sees somebody else doing it, he's like, well, I can do that better. Here, Mm -hmm. let me steal people off the street and I can force them to do this. And then I'll have 100 people doing it for me and look at all the money I'll make. So, I mean, the only people he had to pay were his guards. I almost wonder. And, I mean, it's like fucked up thing to ask how much money do you think they're actually bringing in doing that to pay for these people's lives basically if you if they run one scam and get twenty thousand bucks they have doubled or tripled what they spent on buying the guy so the ranges are maybe higher than you think fawn said he tried not to he said that he got one guy for fifty thousand dollars and he felt so bad about it that he deleted the contact information for that guy out of the phone because he didn't want them to keep going after that guy. Yeah. So what you're saying is that they basically 
did a bad job on purpose just to kind of... Yeah, but there were people who... Look like they were trying but not. Yeah, there were people at Fawn's level who were bringing in $500,000, So if you have 50 people and they bring in an average of $100,000 even in a year, Mm -hmm. that's a lot. That's crazy. I don't disagree with you. There are people who are doing it by themselves, but there are a lot of them who are doing it because they don't have any choice. I mean, other Mm -hmm. than being beaten to death. So if you solve one problem, it will go a long ways towards resolving the other problem, too. I just think, don't text anybody you don't know, guys. That's all I'm saying. I agree with that. (laughs) I agree with that. I mean, even those bank apps. Oh, for sure. I get those all the time. PNC Bank, because somebody's trying to log in. I'm like, I've never used PNC Bank. I don't know... And my bank would never send me that text. Uh-uh. If it says, you know, verify your account information, I don't need to do that. I'm good, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I have an app for that. With that, I thought that was interesting because it never occurred to me that there could be a connection between those yeah. two things. I never thought about it having, like, literally a warehouse full of people doing it. No. But, I mean, think about it. They have sweatshops for everything else around the world. Yeah. Why wouldn't there be a, a scam sweatshop, essentially? Like, Yeah. Hmm. True. But that's all I have for that, and with that, I will say happy 2023. Well, and I hope you had a happy 2022, because this is the last two days of it. I hope you guys have a great new year. Do not drink and drive. Call Uber. Call Lyft. Walk home. (laughs) But not alone. Really, honestly, don't drink and drive. Also, if your city has those little scooter things that are electronic, don't do those and drink because that ends really badly just a heads up okay and drink a lot of water if you go out to a bar keep your hand over your drink or get a lid i'm trying to summarize all of the lessons that, <laughs> that we learned try to year. impart on you this year <laughs> oh and don't murder <laughs> don't murder anyone for new year's it won't go over well for you or them especially for them definitely not for you because dna because dna And here's to next year, catching more of these fuckers who thought they got away. Clink. Clink. I have a plastic cup. That's not that satisfying. (laughs) I also have a plastic cup. We have no glass in this room. Happy days, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we are. We have just done our drawing. Mm -hmm. Well, technically, Puss has done their drawing. (laughs) That's correct. So we actually cut up pieces of paper towel for each person who entered the drawing. Mm -hmm. They were all exactly the same size. We wrote the names on the bottom. Mm Mm-hmm. And put a treat on each one. She sniffed a few. And the first one she ate was... Sam from M-Cubed Podcast. (laughs) So congratulations, Sam. We will get that beanie out to you. I think we already have your address. We do. We've already been to her house a few times. (laughs) We stalk you at night time. We broke in and drank all your liquor. (laughs) (laughs) She'll just be mad that she wasn't there for it. She'd be like, what, you guys had fun and I wasn't there to be part of it? We are very happy that you participated in our drawing, everybody, and we will get that taken care of. Thank you very much for all of our supporters. Thank you for being here all year with us. And to the people who didn't win this time, just keep your ears open. We might be doing that again soon mm-hmm. in the future. So and We might have something different by then because I'm having so much fun ordering things with our That's logo true. and stuff on Next them. time it'll be like a thermos or something. <laughs> So there you go. All right. Congrats, Sam. So happy new year, guys. And our winner, congratulations. And we will talk to you soon. See you next year.
Hi. <laughs> I hate when people say that. Yeah, me too. Bye. Okay, here we are. This is episode 50, soundcheck. I thought that was, I didn't realize you were doing soundcheck. And I was like, please, let's not start the episode with, welcome. Christmas is over. Woohoo. Well, all right then. Soundcheck. Check, 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 check. I'm also actually soundchecking the squeaks on my chair, just in case. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm coughing now. It's like, you're allergic to the sound of my voice. Is she, is she, okay, I don't even. She was down at the other end of the house. Oh, she's sneaking up from behind you for a surprise attack. And as usual, you're such a pain in the butt. Come here. There's one treat left. Eat it and shut up. Yeah. Come here. Okay, you walk in and it's a long rectangular. Rectangular, not rectangular. Rectangular. Okay, <laughs> you win. And then we both easy. look at you, look at her butt. <laughs> She's like, a little privacy, please. She had a cut on her thumb. Thumb. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys always rubbing in the fact that I don't have thumbs. It sounded like you were singing that Fergie song. In hot and blah blah blah. Camponia. Camponia. <laughs> What's Camponia? I've got a cat hair up my nose. Hmm. Wait a minute, what? I don't know what this means. Oh, <laughs> like what the hell am I saying? <laughs> they were welcomed into the Long B, the Long Bend border. That's like a tongue twister. Handsome widowers. Happy 2022, 23. I hate old Lang Syne because I, every time I hear that song, I think about the scene in Poseidon. Okay. I will never hear that and not be like, oh God. <laughs> I should have brought my life jacket. I don't okay. think that would have helped in Poseidon. Well, it would if you jumped out of the ship. How are you going to jump out of the ship? They're literally stuck in the top of the ship. You have to jump out before it... Jump into the tsunami waves, guys. Just <laughs> Man, you're giving me shit today. Is that not by? That's not by because then you said... You're giving me shit today. Are you done? No, I, I want to fight now. <laughs> Can we make it a food fight? <laughs>